You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 1, Hate Groups. Season 1 of On Belief focused primarily on groups and primarily on survivor stories of people who left those groups to illustrate just how easy it is for any person to get involved in a coercive mind control situation. Season two of On Belief is going to focus even more deeply on coercive control and the other places that you can find it. The focus for today's episode is white supremacist terror hate groups. If you've been following the news the last four years, you've noticed quite an uptick in violence and hatred from these groups, and a lot of it being mainstreamed and a lot of it being laundered through regular news outlets. Fox News, even CNN will have people like Richard Spencer on their television show. So how did this happen? How did we get from a system where it was thought of as completely abhorrent to have somebody who was a member of a white supremacist group as a commentator on a mainstream news program to now where mainstream news outlets are afraid to describe white supremacists as white supremacists and are afraid of the groups that they represent. That's where my guest today comes in. My guest today is David Nybert, author of Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. Welcome, David. In your book, Alt America, you discuss the formation of the Tea Party as being fundamental to being the precursor to what we're seeing now as this emergence and reemergence of hate groups. It was a movement that relied pretty heavily on recruitment. It was a movement that relied upon secret knowledge. And it was a movement that grew with a staggering pace. It also followed a pattern of cultic behavior where it promised the things that you believe are not wrong. You're actually right. It also offered easy enemies. There was an underclass that was trying to come and get you of minorities and poor people. And the specter of this democratic new world order that was about to get you from the top. It even had its own scripture, the Constitution. So talk to me about how this came to be and was cultic in origin. Well, the technique that they used is really very, very similar to what you find in uh, certain kinds of religious fundamentalism and cultic fundamentalism, which is that they uh, provide an interpretation of the scripture, as it were, which is how they treat the, the Constitution. And they even actually will say that, you know, this was divinely inspired text, and which is why we have to pay attention to its every single word. And then they provide the the specific interpretation of it and say that that's the only legitimate possible uh, interpretation of it. They also, uh, of course, inject 
things into the Constitution that aren't actually there, uh, such as the supposed uh, the uh, radical localism, the claim that you know the, the sheriff is the highest uh, law of the land, and and that the uh, uh, federal government is is limited to just doesn't actually get to own public land and that sort of thing. That sort of thing uh, comes out of it's it's exactly the same sort of thing that you'll find certain uh, uh, Christian cults doing with the Bible in terms of how they, they give a very narrow uh, interpretation of Scripture and say, this is exactly what it means. And any uh, aberration from that or any dissent is considered heresy. So, uh, and yeah, so that's how they, I mean, they, of course, naturally then condemn pretty much all liberal democracy, certainly everything after um, FDR uh, as uh, you know, anti unconstitutional and so on and so forth, and uh, this you know for some reason doesn't seem to include having a standing army and that sort of thing. But uh, but they do toy with that with the whole militia concept anyway. So at any rate, that's yeah, that's how they're. Their version of constitutionalism is really very similar to uh, the the kind of manipulation of meaning that you get within uh, uh, cultic fundamentalist Christianity, and uh, often there's a real crossover there too. A lot of the folks that you meet in the Patriot movement are, in fact, um, fundamentalist Christians of a very particular stripe. It seems like the movement really got it's gasoline thrown onto the fire moment with the nomination of Obama because they finally had their, for lack of a better term, antichrist. I do believe that no matter who won the 2008 election, uh, I think any Democrat was going to be coming in for a treatment very similar to what we saw handed out, doled out to Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And that was really a lot of what when we saw a lot of right-wing extremism getting mainstreamed originally was in response to Bill Clinton in the 1990s with the Patriot Militia Movement, you know, and Tim McVeigh and Eric Rudolph and all of that. So, and I think whoever won in 2008 was probably going to be getting, you know, if, if it was a Democrat, it was going to be getting a lot of that very similar kind of blowback. In, I mean, it, it, it was pretty obvious that by 2007, 2008, the Patriot Militia Movement was returning, was reorganizing, and was spreading a lot of its stuff into the mainstream. I don't think it anticip anyone anticipated having a major conduit for this ideology into the mainstream in the form of the Tea Party um, mm -hmm. that we saw after Obama's election. But uh, certainly going into the election, I think that we all felt that, you know, somebody was, whoever was going to be president was going to be getting this. And, of course, it doesn't hurt that, you know, the origins of that patriot militia movement, um, as I was telling you, you know, you know, some of the Christian, some of the, the, the fundamentalist aspects of it were very similar to uh, fundamentalistic Christian cults. And one of these in particular was one that we consider in many regards the origins of the Patriot Militia Movement, which is the Christian Identity Movement. 
which existed, you know, going back to the 1930s and 40s. And this was the religious movement that believed that white people were the real Jews and that uh, Jews were the Satan or the children of Satan, descendants of Satan, literally, and that uh, non-whites were soulless mud people. And that's uh, and that's literally what they preach, right? And this is where a lot of the the ideology that went into these what we now know as constitutionalism, especially the extremely limited form of government of localized government or, or limited federal government and and hyper uh, localized uh, power, those those kinds of things were endemic to. Uh, you know, that was part of the Christian identity belief system. And the people who are traced to the origins of the militia movement, particularly guys like William Potter Gale, uh, were in fact Christian identity believers. So um, that's why we see this thread that went all the way up into into the election of Obama with suddenly the, the real the racist underpinnings of of this movement really started welling to the surface in part because uh, he was a black man uh, in large part because he was a black man i mean that animus would have been there regardless they would have called him a communist and a socialist and blah 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 uh, a tyrant and so on and so forth they would have done that to hillary clinton if she had been the winner uh, but <coughs> they definitely there was a real edge to it uh, being a black man because that really brought out a lot of these older racial elements that were also uh, part of this dark underbelly of American politics. The rise of these groups parallels and goes right alongside the rise of some other religious groups that are um, gaining steam in America, namely Quiverful, namely um, as I discussed in season one, and militant Christian evangelicals. What binds these groups together? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that, you know, what, what the sort of underlying um, thread that, or really the underlying phenomenon that runs through all of this is authoritarianism. And when I talk about authoritarianism, I don't mean uh, sort of in the typical political sense where we always think of, you know, authoritarian regimes that are run by a strongman ruler, and we always think of them basically as reflections of that strongman ruler. We certainly are seeing uh, a trend in that direction in the United States, but the, the what people need to understand is that these authoritarianism is never about the person at the top. It's always about that giant army of people that actually support them, that actually want an authoritarian style of government, where you just basically have a, 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 a you know, everything is basically conceded to the power of an instinctive ruler whose, whose judgments are deemed supreme to rule of law and everything else. And this is fairly, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is an ethos you see in, in Hollywood movies all the time that, you know, uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood movies, you know, let's just cut through the, let's cut through the red tape and just get to, down to what's really going on, right? That's sort of part of 
it, people need to understand that what, what that appeals to this is a very normal part of the human psyche, but it's a, or at least it's a, there's a spectrum of personality, uh, basically between 20 and 30% of any population has people, has people with this personality type, um, which is that, you know, you basically have, you have this, what we call right-wing authoritarian personality. There's also left-wing authoritarian personalities, uh, but they're distinct in very different ways from right-wing authoritarians, though they have certain, uh, also certainly some traits in common. But uh, right-wing authoritarians are very ascendant right now, and uh, you, we certainly are seeing... Um, seeing them play out, seeing it all play out on a national scale uh, with Donald Trump. But prior to the, the ascendance of Trump, um, we certainly saw this authoritarianism being whipped up and being whipped into shape uh, in part because of the, the rise of, you know, um, right-wing media, which was constantly hammering out a lot of propaganda that was mostly false information. And also the rise of uh, conspiracy theories, the rise of the conspiracist uh, media network, the Alex Joneses and this whole world that's on YouTube and social media of, of just belief in people call it getting red pilled, but it's all this belief in, you know, these bizarre conspiracy theories. And you know, conspiracism is one of the uh, the key traits of right-wing authoritarian personalities. What r really is key for author uh, authoritarian personalities is basically they have three, uh, what we call behavioral and attitudinal clusters that form the, the nexus of uh, their personality type. And the first one is um, authoritarian submission the belief that in order to have in order to have an orderly and secure society and have safety for your families and good schools and so on and so forth uh, we must have this uh, we everyone must submit to the rule we should all submit to the rule of the authoritarian leader the instinctive authoritarian leader and do what he says the second cluster is authoritarian aggression, which is directed against anyone who fails to appropriately submit to the rule of the authoritarian leader. And then the third is conventionalism, which is this belief that they represent the real America or the real mainstream and that they are, um, that they are, they are really the, uh, the conventional person themselves, you know, they represent, they stand for what is conventional. And um, those three clusters combine in, in a lot of ways uh, to create real distinct, a, a distinctive set of traits that include um, a propensity to conspiracism, uh, compartmentalized thinking, which is the ability to think, to believe two completely contradictory things at the same time, and uh, a high tolerance for bigoted and high tolerance or actual participation in bigoted and prejudicial behavior you know there it's it's this whole set of traits that we're seeing emerging now in real time you know on, on a pretty broad scale 
inherent to these groups is a series of contradictions, notably the complete mistrust of the government and the people who are running it, yet an absolutely fanatical devotion to all of the trappings and all of the symbols, including the military and the flag and the anthem. Why is that? You know, it's it'd be really simple to just say jingoism because that in a lot of ways is just what we're seeing here. But it actually happens because uh, because people do uh, believe, you know, they want to believe that they're part of something better and, and, and that they, I mean, ultimately jingoism is about appealing to that, so some very good elements, which are that, you know, we should all be a, um, we should all get along together and have a civil and 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 safe society. But um, the at the same time, what they really want to do is force the execs, everyone into their <laughs> mold of behavior. And you know, and they, this is why they get so upset when football players kneel. So when you saw the kerfuffle happening over the kneeling football players. Did that make sense to you? Yeah, it was pretty fascinating because, you know, I was, uh, and how widespread it was. So one of the key players, or one of the key football players who was kneeling um, was a Seahawk guy named Michael Bennett. Seahawk lineman, defensive lineman. He's great. Now plays for the Patriots. And Michael was, God, he was, I was leaving at SeaTac Airport one day and he was on a flight in front of me. And for some reason, they wound up getting the boarding getting getting delayed. So we were all shuffling in a line <laughs> past him, and and everybody says, "Oh, there's Michael Bennett," and he was sitting in a chair. Uh, there, we were all going to walk past, and, and I said, "Oh, cool," you know. And this lady, very very nice, upper middle class, white suburban lady, you know, typical air, air traveler, says, "Well, I won't say I." Uh, I love how he plays, but I won't say hi to him or anything because he's. Uh, I'm so mad at him over for kneeling. <laughs> so when I got up there, I, I made a point to say, "Dude, you are right. You're right on. You tell him." <laughs> a lot of people who might not be familiar with these movements saw that and thought, "What's the big deal?" But this really was a true blasphemy to them. Well, they, especially football, which they see as being part of this mom and apple pie uh, patriotism thing, right? And that's why people got so upset and angry about it. A lot of it has to do with just defensiveness, frankly. I mean, I think a lot of people are very defensive over the reality that um, that we do treat black people badly and and we know it. You know, I think there's, I think there's just a lot of defensiveness over it, especially within the ranks of law enforcement. So, unlike the groups that we've discussed on this show before, white nationalism is a code of many colors. It is extremely diverse in the number of groups and in the approach that these groups take. So, how do these groups interact with each other? Actually, they don't. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of internecine uh, uh, war that goes on within the far right, which actually works very much to 
the world's advantage because they can hardly get along with each other. For the, I mean, one of the things that right extremism does is it does tend to attract uh, sociopathic personalities, particularly in the leadership positions, and it especially attracts a lot of these uh, social dominance-oriented per, uh, personalities. So you get this really nasty brew of egos and paranoia, and uh, just it gets it gets really brutally ugly on the radical right. A lot of it, there is actually a real spectrum of belief too. Everything from, of course, the the neo-Nazi types, the Adam Waffen SS kids who who actually want to uh, have uh, another mass genocide of Jews and non-whites. Uh, and there are kids who fall into that uh, spectrum, all the way to, you know, the to the what we call the alt-light spectrum, the the Mike Cernoviches who just kind of dance around these issues, the issues of white nationalism a lot, but all the while sort of promoting their their pet themes, which are that you know uh, blacks are lazy, Mexicans want to take your jobs, <laughs> and and gay people want to give you AIDS, you know, or something like that. Or you know, and and it even goes into the mainstream spectrum, the the Fox News is the, because you've got Tucker Carlson on there spreading white nationalist crap, and you've got Laura Ingram on there spreading white nationalist crap, and you've got Lou Dobbs on on Fox Business spreading white nationalist crap. There is a spectrum where very much is part of what we'd even call mainstream conservatism. How do they come together? They come together when there's a single charismatic personality. That's why Donald Trump's so dangerous. And that was why that was why I started writing the book when I did, which was in spring of 2016. I didn't expect him to win, but I was concerned that what we were seeing was this congealing of all these various kinds of forces under his umbrella. It has really lethal consequences for American politics for another generation to come. Uh, I mean, Trump could disappear tomorrow, and this would be a problem. Why do you think the mainstream media, including the New York Times, gave such cover to these types of people? Do you think that they thought that Donald Trump was going to win? I think they didn't think he was going to win. Yeah, I didn't think they thought he had any chance of winning. And so they basically kind of put a thumb on the scale against Hillary just to make it more interesting, I think, partly for their readers. But being a, a longtime media guy, I finally got out of newsroom work. And I was in 2000, but I was... I was a newsroom editor for uh, about 20 years before I went freelance. And um, I can tell you that the newsrooms that I worked in through the, uh, in, particularly through the 90s, became really toxified by the fear and threat of being accused of liberal media bias. I mean, a guy like me uh, who was raised in Southern Idaho as a Republican would just be summarily dismissed as a raving liberal because I report on right-wing extremists, right? And uh, this is not what is not the way it's supposed to be, um, and it's not the what we should be seeing. So, um, yeah, I um, I left newsroom work in 2000 partly because I felt that I'd become. This uh, paranoia about liberal media bias was just uh, 
it, you know, it was, let me put it this way. It really uh, altered the shape and content of news operations. But I will say it also was largely a product of corporate ownership. Because at the very top, uh, the, the, what I saw as corporations took over more and more of the media in the 80s and 90s, uh, our ownership became more, uh, not just rigidly uh, conservative, but, um, you know, inclined to cut newsroom budgets when, <laughs> when, when the reporting embarrassed their friends. That's not the way media is supposed to work. That's not the way the press is supposed to work in this country. Fox News is a very profitable operation. It's also a travesty of a news operation. Anybody who's been in the business, especially a crusty old reporter like me, just has nothing but utter contempt for Fox News and what it does because it has it has no resemblance to a legitimate news operation, except maybe when Shepard Smith's on. You know, what they're doing now is not any different than what they did in 2008, which was whip up, you know, and, and for that matter, 2001 and two, when they just did nothing but whip the country into a state of fear. And they use fear-mongering techniques, they use um, all kinds of false information and distorted information to present a really distorted picture of America and what is going on in the world. So, um, you know, and they say, well, it's fair and balanced, which is everybody knows is a joke. Something that cults are famous for is keeping people in the scripture, in the teaching, in the group daily. Do you think that that's the function that Fox News, One America Network, all of these types of quote-unquote news outlets perform for these people? Two minutes, two minutes hate. It's it's right out of Orwell. <laughs> in 84, it's so two minutes hate. Uh, yeah, no, and it does. It, actually, it's really funny. If you take Fox News away from folks who get addicted to it, they complain and need to have it because they need to have that that jazz of hating on something every day because that's what keeps them going. And it's, it's really sick and twisted and it's really bad for America. I mean, at some point we're going to wake up, have to wake up and realize that, look folks, we've got a TV station or a TV, a t cable channel that explicitly uh, basically is engaged in coaching half of the country to hate the other half. And now you want, and now you're wondering why that half is trying to blow a bunch of people up and walks into WalMarts with with AR-15s and opens fire, you know? Oh, well, that's why. So if this were just lay people who believed some of these conspiracy theories, it would be one thing. But as we're finding out more and more every day, there are a lot of people in seats of power, whether that is the police, the military the judicial branch of the government, or even the government itself, that believe a lot of these um, talking points. This is where the comparison to a cult sort of breaks down because cults only wish that they had this kind of institutional buy-in. So talk to me about who's involved in these groups. Uh, think of what happened in, in the Malheur standoff uh, with the sheriff in Grant County, uh, Glenn Palmer, who is, in fact, a, a member, a leading member in good standing of the um, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, which is one of these uh, constitutionalist groups that believes that the sheriff is the supreme law of the land 
and that the federal government has no business on their land. He actually believes, you know, I mean, he's Grant County has these huge BLM holdings, and he's so he's constantly at war with the federal uh, uh, BLM rangers down there. And, uh, you know, he's finally going to retire, I guess. Uh, but at least that was the announcement he made a couple of weeks ago. But uh, but he was he played a key role in the whole Malheur standoff because he was the guy that the that the Malheur standoff leaders were all driving to go meet when they got roadblocked and uh, Lavoie Finnegan was shot. So um, and Palmer played a key role in encouraging these guys. And Palmer's not the only one. He, there are actually several of these sheriffs in the Northwest who are members of the CSPOA. And you'll find actually that it's surprising how many of these sheriffs actually have bought into, uh, especially in rural areas, have bought into the CSPOA uh, nonsense. And it's it is it's cultic garbage, mm. uh, but it's a it teaches these sheriffs a version of the Constitution that does not exist, has never been recognized by any court of law, and. Um, it's not something that actually is constructive for in terms of them performing their duties. It's like mm-hmm. It runs the opposite way. Yeah, and so it's and yes, it has all these white supremacist uh, strands running through it. Um, so when people worry about their law enforcement officers being part of this, they have very good reason to be. And there's also a, a surprising number of cops who are members of the Oath Keepers, uh, which is this uh, constitutionalist, patriot, extremely paranoid, very far-right organization that's closely affiliated with... uh, They've been out there marching with these Proud Boys at events in Portland I've been covering. Um, And they're part of... They're closely affiliated with the 3% Militia, which is also another nationwide militia organization that teaches this a lot of this cockamamie constitutionalist theory but um yeah the 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 problem is so do people have legitimate concerns about their law enforcement absolutely they do and then you know and there are things like the uh the, the police officer in muskegon michigan recently who had uh, put his home up for sale and uh knew he was going to have a black family touring the home so he hung up his framed copy of his Ku Klux Klan certificate uh, and uh, the guy took pictures of it on social media and so immediately apparently you know uh, apparently the guy is surreptitiously a member of the Klan and uh, he, he back in 2011 he actually shot a kid a black kid in in circumstances that were considered dubious, found a traffic pullover. <clears throat> so um, his case is all being looked at now because he pulled this stunt when he was selling his home. Uh, but um, I think it's just scraping under the surface. The FBI did an assessment back in 2008 that said that there's a lot of infiltration of law enforcement uh, by dedicated white supremacists and white nationalists. So um, how far up the ladders they've gotten, I have no idea. But 
there's members of them in those ranks for sure. Something that all controlling groups do once they get a bit of notoriety and once they get to a certain size is they begin to push the boundaries on the public and on the government. We saw this with a man named Cliven Bundy. The government really stood back on that issue. Do you think that that's partially because they just didn't know what to do? Or do you think that it had a lot to do with the fact that they had previously been shamed for how they handled Ruby Ridge and Waco? Yeah, I think a lot of it is that what you is the latter, that they didn't, uh, they don't want to be the bad guys. That was certainly the case, I think, during the Bundy situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I covered the Freeman standoff in 1996 in eastern Montana, which was when I think the FBI kind of started figuring it out, how to um, end one of these things uh, without, without a lot of bloodshed. You know, and nobody died in that standoff. It went mm-hmm. on for 81 days, but um, they finally got him out of there. And and it was a totally different approach than what you had seen at Ruby Ridge or Waco. So, um, and and the government has since been very a lot smarter about it. But um, the problem is that you know after certainly after the Freeman standoff, those people all went to prison for a long time, you know, and there hasn't been any of that enforcement. Uh, uh, the follow-up uh, t- to the extent, or let's put it this way, competent enforcement. Uh, mm-hmm. What's actually happened is that the prosecution has botched uh, these cases that should have been open and shut. Um, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with high-handed behavior by the, the uh, U.S. Attorney's offices. So, um, you know, and that's just competence. So, you know, it's... Let's talk about the role that secret knowledge plays in recruitment with these groups. It's very similar to how cultic groups promise that they have the only knowledge that's worth having and that once you have this knowledge, the whole world will open up to you. And the place that these people are getting all of that information from is the internet. So David, how is this different now in the way that these groups recruit versus how they did in the 70s? Actually, in the 70s, it relied on face-to-face interaction. And so it occurred at a much slower rate. And because it was face-to-face, you know, the anonymity, people were actually, there. There, I don't know, something would happen when not cases would talk to people and present themselves as normal uh that people would still be able to tell that they were not cases that goes away on the internet that a lot of these people can present very nutty stuff and seem very rational on the internet and it's a part of the what happens on the internet which is that it's just actually a simulacrum of of uh, actual human behavior uh, or human interaction that's true also i mean that's a lot of why demonization and dehumanization is so easy to have happen on the internet. So it's very easy to dehumanize and, de- and demonize the people that you're interacting with. And that's why trolling is so popular and so possible, you know, and it has a certain attraction, particularly to uh, young men who are prone to uh, who appreciate transgressive behavior and, be- and humor, which is not uncommon at all, at all, especially among teenage males. But what does happen is what has so the internet 
has simply just opened this huge Pandora's box for all this, partly because it's not just 8chan and 4chan, although these are very big fonts of radicalization happens. And it's not just Twitter and Instagram and even Facebook, although kids don't use Facebook. But I can tell you a lot of the extremists do, a lot of the patriots do. Uh, a lot of the boomer uh, right-wing extremists use Facebook. But actually, where a lot of the radicalization is taking place is in, I mean, what, what is happening is that basically these extremists are seeking out every corner of the internet where you can have essentially open access to other people and using them as... Uh, platforms for radicalizing people, including video games. You get get into, you know, you have these online conversations with people you're playing video games with on the internet. Um, that's This is where they're going in and they're having, you know, you'll have these chat rooms in the games. Phil, people are going in there and getting recruited into these white nationalist systems. And a lot of what, what we really saw this come to a head during the whole Gamergate episode and between 2012 and 14, which was really opened, uh, what were, you could really see the process taking place there, because these guys would go in and they, what they were, a, a lot of these young men loved their first-person shooter games, and somebody was, if somebody introduced a an alternative platform, they would get paranoid. That's that. Oh no, they're going to take away their first-person shooter games, right? They're these video games are going to go to these uh, uh, soft, feely, uh, touchy-feely plat, you know, uh, architectures that'll be that will really suck when I want to just blow something up, right? <laughs> and they get in these chat rooms, and the, the white nationalists are, who are there lurking and playing these video games also would say, "Well, I can tell you why these feminists, you know, this is all these feminists, right? So they start ragging on feminists. This is." Plot by feminists to destroy um, your fun as as men, as young males, and then and th- then they go to well, you know why these feminists are doing it? They're part of a larger plot called cultural Marxism, and then they go into and teach and, and tell them all about cultural Marxism, which is you know this plan by. Uh, a cabal of Jewish scholars to destroy Western white civilization and do it by having everybody watch movies and listen to rock and roll. This uh, attached to which, of course, is the great replacement theory, which is that, well, what they're really trying to do, they want to replace all the white people with brown people. And so um, this is something that's ongoing. And so you're being made expendable and we're just—they're going to sweep you aside and replace you with brown people, and that's eventually where this goes. And that's all part of this white nationalist recruitment arc. It just goes boom, 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 one step after another. And next thing you know, these kids are all yeah, we're we're in their MAGA hats and smirking and uh, telling everybody that you know, and waving Pepe flag. What you're describing is a reinforcement loop that we've seen in the episode that we did about multi-level marketing. It also is a cornerstone to internet-based cults, and even just mainstream cults that meet online. This just has a, it has a political uh, component to it. These people actually uh, take this take this very cultic behavior, and I agree that it is cultic. Uh, it's, it's almost identical to cultic behavior because it is, it is ultimately this authoritarianism one way or the other. 
It's just not, it's not religious authoritarianism, it's more of a political authoritarianism. And, and they want to take it out and, and cram it down everybody else's throat. <laughs> you discuss in Alt America that there are groups such as anti-vaxxers and um, people who believe conspiracy theories such as QAnon that are helping drive the recruitment and helping drive the entrenchment of these hate groups. Much like cults, they are insular groups that begin to separate themselves from their family, their friends, the things that they like to do in the outside world, and they spend most of their time with their group and reinforcing the ideas of the group. What's the importance and the function of these conspiracy theories in this ecosystem? QAnon is a cult, and it's very much... Yeah, no, it's 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 really bizarre. Partly because it's so disattached from reality, and that is actually how cults work: is that they constantly driving wedges between. The, once you take that first step, you can find yourself sucked in really fat, far and fast, and mm-hmm. um, because the the separation, the wedges come fast and furious between you and your not just reality, but your family, your friends and the people who are close to you. This is why so many of them, um, and and why we're also seeing a real problem with some of these people acting out violently because they become extremely isolated and (laughs) extremely angry and they believe they're already extremely paranoid. Yeah, it it generally has really dire consequences. Uh, and certainly, if nothing else, it's really what it really is, is kind of to me is tragically toxic to literally millions of, of family relationships around the country is this kind of uh, not just, you know, not just QAnon, but the general authoritarianism that is rising, uh, especially the conspiracy theory stuff. But QAnon is pretty much the apotheosis of this conspiracism that I think is really poisoning our modern culture. Something else that these groups share with groups that have a cultic background to them is that when you confront somebody in one of these groups about their beliefs or you begin to question how they get to their beliefs, they will really entrench and double down and just not want to listen to you and shut you out. The reason that getting people into this mode is so important is that it is also how you then weaponize those people to turn around and violently support the cause. White supremacist terror is statistically the biggest threat facing North America right now. Do you think we're going to continue to see more and more violence? Uh, well, I don't. I think it's kind of baked in to the system that we're going to be seeing more. Partly because guns are everywhere. Uh, uh, part of reeling this back is going to be, you know, disarming a lot of people, getting AR-15s out of the hands of people who shouldn't hand them. And honestly, I think we're going to have a real problem at the end of the election. I don't think Donald Trump is going to win, and I think he and his followers are going to act out violently. But it's pretty clear that. Uh, uh, Trump himself is, you know, he's made the reference to the bikers for Trump are not going to let this happen. And that's exactly the element we're talking about. Because the bikers for Trump are actually a bunch of patriots. 
and that's and that's the same element. This is the same people we've been part of these oath keepers and three percenters and that sort of thing that mm -hmm. I've been covering at these street events. I think there's going to be some people who get hurt, and it's going to be really unfortunate. The only way we could possibly reverse this now is if. Donald Trump were to suddenly have a brain transplant and, and yeah. recognize the error of his ways and denounce his former path and tell everybody to cool down and chill out and then he would step aside. I mean, that's only the only way I think that we would be able to avoid the violence. And I so I don't think that I think that's like a cold day in hell that that would ever happen. So what can we expect out of the future of these groups? Are they going to continue to grow? Are they going to get to a certain point and contract? Are they going to get to a certain point and the government will take notice and try to beat them back? At least for the time being, uh, particularly as long as the open structure of the internet is permitted to continue as it is um and this stuff is able to spread the way it does uh that you know this isn't going to recede at any time soon and in fact i expect it to keep growing which means that we're going to have more of these lone wolf terrorist attacks we're going to have more kids uh from your neighborhood uh, getting sucked into these uh, belief systems. And uh, it's, you know, part of it is going to have to be, you know, parents waking up and realizing that this, this is actually aiming for their kids. Because it does. I mean, that's, that's who the, you know, Anglin, Andrew Anglin of the Daily Stormer brags about how he aims his, his recruitment signature begins at age 12, you know. So, you know, that's what they're that's what they're aiming for is these young, vulnerable kids. The more vulnerable, the better. And, you know, they, they aim for people who are troubled. They aim for people who are emotionally troubled uh, and also troubled in real life in terms of, you know, if their life sucks for various reasons. And there's a lot of people going on the Web and, and talking about how their lives suck. So, um, so there's a lot of recruitment out there, uh, potential for them. And, um, you know, I, who was it? Jan Berger of uh, uh, the terrorism expert who actually specializes in for years or specialized for years in ISIS, uh, analyzing ISIS online recruitment and radicalization, said, uh, started looking at the white nationalist world and realized that it's actually a much, much more uh, uh, lethal potentially lethal problem in part because the audience, the potential audience for recruitment of people online is so much larger and you know, there's a lot more people, white kids, you know, fair, fairly well-to-do, mostly suburban white kids in particular um, who are online than there are uh, poor radical Muslims who typically are mostly just living in villages. So, uh, you know, the, the recruitment potential for ISIS is very limited. Potential recruitment for white nationalism is really almost unlimited and frighteningly so. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's slowing down anytime soon. Um, I think we need to wake up. You know, I think Americans need to wake up. The, this stuff is actually, this is first and foremost a, a, a challenge to their democracy. This stuff is profoundly anti-democratic. 
and what it seeks to do is to destroy democracy. So we have a long road ahead of us. We have to we have to first defeat these forces that are trying to destroy our democracy. We need to build it back up or restore what they've already torn down. And then we need to start building it back up so that democracy is strong again and can doesn't have to deal with these kinds of assaults. What do you think people don't know enough about when it comes to these groups? What people don't really know is that it has, it has this double dehumanizing effect. I mean, ultimately, right-wing extremism is about dehumanizing other people, right? Dehumanizing the brown people or dehumanizing LGBT people or whatever. I mean, it's all about who they hate. And, and you hate them by turning in, them into objects fit for elimination, which is how you ultimately get down the go down the path of of committing acts of violence against them but it, and that's the thing is that it's not what what they don't realize or well there's two things that people don't realize when they go down these rabbit holes the first is that yes it's very easy to dehumanize other people but when you do that once you sip from that cup you dehumanize yourself you lose you lose a chunk of your own humanity you lose a big chunk of what it is that makes you somebody that people will want to date. I mean, these guys, a lot of these guys that complain about being involuntary celibates are actually really awful people, and partly because they have have drank from that cup so deeply that they don't really see any other way of have any other way of understanding the world, which is this really hateful vision of uh, ultimately you just want to see the world burn, right? And and I, you know, that's what that's what happens. And it's the same thing that happens with conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories feel initially really empowering. And that's why people, that's their attraction. You feel like you have secret information that nobody else has, right? That And that, that only you or your friends are going to know this stuff. And that when, when the shit hits the fan, you're going to be able to avoid all of the end of the world stuff because you're on top of it and nobody else does, right? So, and that's that's how Alex Jones works and that's how all these conspiracy theorists work. But, but what actually happens, what they actually feed them is a narrative that is incredibly disempowering because it, among the other things that the narrative tells them is that you're that you're actually against forces so deeply entrenched and so nefarious and so evil that you actually have no chance whatsoever against them. They're going to get you one way or the other, and your best way of of avoiding them is to just hunker down and hope you don't attract their attention, which ultimately means just unplugging everything from the entire world and getting yourself a cabin in Montana somewhere <laughs> with, with a bunker full of food, rice and beans. And certainly it means that that your your participation in the political process, the political process is a joke. So why would you even bother participating? Which means that you eventually uh, eviscerate your whatever political power you actually have in the United States. You don't engage in the, the democratic process. You don't vote. You don't go out and 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 convince other people to vote or convince other people to vote for your candidate or whatever. That's, I mean, that's how, how we participate in this process. <clears throat> Once you withdraw down these rabbit holes, 
you cut yourself off from actual political power. So ultimately you are just, in, it's incredibly isolating and disempowering. And it feels initially like you're, you're really being empowered and, and you're actually connecting to other people, you know, in, who are part of this other community. But what actually of course also happens once you get into this other community is, uh, and go down the rabbit hole, you find out that they're also paranoid and egotistical that they actually, fear and despise each other as well so whatever friendships you have uh, might develop down in that rabbit hole community are actually incredibly tenuous and very typically very short-lived so if i'm the friend the relative of a person who i suspect is getting really heavily into these groups what can i do to help them get out there are things you can do and particularly because i think that the only people who are going to pull people out of these rabbit holes and basically act as an antidote to the red pill are people who they have relationships with. And um, it's actually a really long, slow, very difficult process. So before you even begin to undertake it, you really need to honestly assess whether it's worth it because it doesn't have a particularly high likelihood of success because it's really hard to pull these folks out. And you actually have the chance of making things worse, particularly if you push the wrong way. But it does it does require actually in the initial steps, giving up your normal reaction of saying, "Wait, that sounds crazy. Are you out of your goddamn mind?" You know, <laughs> which is my normal reaction to this stuff, right? It, it it's actually forces them into a crouch. It forces them to actually embrace these. Uh, odd beliefs in a hard, harder way than they would otherwise. Basically, you have to be sympathetic. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be curious. And these are the kinds of things. And basically draw them out. And get to the point where you can uh, get to when you start asking why they believe certain things, why they want to believe certain things. Find out that's when you start getting into what their actual motives for believing these things are. And then once you understand that, then you can start uh, suggesting alternatives for them that still meet those needs, but don't go down the crazy hole, right? And uh, and then once you start, but basically build the bond with the person enough that that you can pull them out, and then eventually, then you start bringing you know real facts in <laughs> but do it gently at first that sort of thing you know it's a very slow very difficult and very painful process but it is possible to pull people out usually there comes a moment when they suddenly the light comes on and they realize they've been stupid just on a very logical basis right but um but it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of work and it's really hard you it may not be successful so really it's only i i only recommend people do it if it's somebody that they really care about david nybert thank you so much for being with me today you can follow david on twitter at at david nybert and you can buy his book alt america wherever books are sold thank you for listening to on belief a podcast about cults i'm karen geyer you can follow me at at k-a-r-e-n-g-e-i-e-r or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at OnBeliefPod. And you can contribute to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer. You can also visit our website. It's just OnBelief.com. Next week. First, 
and very importantly, there's deception. You are lied to in a cult, which is, I think, at the crux of what makes something a destructive cult. When people are recruited into cults, they are never told what the true intention is for them to be involved. They are given lots of false promises that the thing that they're hoping to be able to fix in their life will be solved, will be fixed only if they get involved in this group. Or they'll meet the nicest people they've ever met, or they'll have the truest friendships they've ever met, or that's, this is the only way they're going to have a true relationship with God. All of it will be promised to you. And all of it will be lies. What makes a cult a cult separate from a healthy organization or a religion or even a healthy relationship is the fact that you are lied to nearly from the first moment. Rachel Bernstein cult therapist.